One of the ways that the people of God are are described in the book Love Your Church are are those who gather in order to worship and then scatter to to shine the light of Christ into our communities. Uh, And it's a great picture Far from being one day a week Christians who turn up to church on a Sunday and then live very different lives the rest of the week. Christians are those who gather on the first day of the week and then scatter throughout their communities into their different families, workplaces, hobbies and so on. Uh, But they do so now as those seeking to shine the light of the gospel wherever they go. It's not that that doing those things makes us Christians. Uh, We become Christians not by being born in a Christian country or by doing religious acts or or even through sharing uh, what it is to be a Christian. Uh, But we become Christians at that moment when we're born again and when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. But as a, a picture of the Christian life, it is a good one. The Christian life is marked by the weekly rhythm of gathering and then scattering. And obviously of the two things, the gathering is fundamental. We will only be salt and light in our communities if we're gathering together to be shaped more and more into the people God wants us to be. As his word is proclaimed and as we spend time with other believers... If we don't, we'll shrivel and die. And yet, the very idea that God's people need to gather is under threat today. And we're going to look at the reasons for that under our first heading this morning, uh, which is that Christian gathering is under threat. Christian gathering is under threat. As I mentioned in the first sermon in the series, it's no coincidence that 2021 saw books being published with titles such as Love Your Church or Rediscover Church. What had happened in the year or so before those books were published? Well, quite simply, the answer is COVID-19 and the related lockdowns and limitations on gatherings in many, many countries around the world. And the worry was that people wouldn't come back. They may have worshipped regularly in churches for years or even decades. But when the churches reopened, would they be there? And to some extent, those fears have proven well-grounded. Of course, there were some who were physically able to be at church before lockdowns. But but as time passed... uh, they're no longer able to be at church. It's not that they, they chose not to come back. They, they just came, there just came a time when they weren't able to. Uh, and that time will come for some of us when we long to be with the people of God, but we're housebound and unable to be there. And what a responsibility that leaves us uh, now to, to visit those who, who are in that position And for those who physically can't be at church, uh, one benefit of the pandemic is that churches are now better set up to broadcast services, whether by phone or or video, uh, to those who can't be there. Though though sadly, even that can be abused by those who who could be at church uh, but choose not to be. So there are those who 
physically we're able to be at worship in March 2020 and are no longer able to be at church. But many congregations have also had the sad experience of others simply deciding not to come back. So that's the background against which some of these books were written. But similar books were already being written. Because professing Christians skipping church is a problem that existed long before COVID. And there are various reasons for that. For start, it's a long time since going to church was the socially respectable thing to do. So there isn't that social expectation to be at church, which there would have been in previous generations. Another reason is that there are now many other options on a Sunday for what people can do. There's Sunday sport, for example, uh, not just in terms of watching it, but also in terms of participating it, uh, particularly for, for children or, or at youth level. And parents perhaps feel that they'll be holding their children back or causing them to miss out on opportunities if they bring their children to church instead. There are, are community events on the Lord's Day, such as the, the fireworks display tonight, which we have a session uh, when it was moved to a Sunday in the first place. We, we wrote uh, to, to, to those organising it uh, and, and, and pleaded with them to, to, to keep it on a Saturday, uh, but, but it's on the Lord's Day. Another reason for skipping church, particularly in a, in a post-Christian nation like Scotland, is that many Christians are the only believers in their families. Uh, and, and we feel for those people. And so the, the Christian wife may feel pressure from her, her non-Christian husband to make Sunday into a family day. A Christian grandparent may feel pressure to help out with childcare on Sundays. Or if we're visiting non-Christian family members or, or they're visiting us, there may be the pressure to fall in with what they're doing on a Sunday rather than maintaining our own convictions. And then you add into that the busyness of modern life. Particularly if there are, are children and both parents are working full time. And things which once could have been done during the week are now done at weekends. And so things which, which should be done on other days encroach on a day which should be set aside for God. The day which the New Testament calls the Lord's Day. The other six days are ours in a sense, uh, though biblical principles apply for what we do on them, but the Lord's day is his day. So when I say that Christian gathering is under threat, I don't mean that we've received a letter from the Christian Institute telling us that Christian worship is going to be made illegal, though parts of it are under very real threat. Rather, I mean that Christian gathering is under threat because God's people aren't prioritizing it. In many cases, that's simply because of apathy. Uh, at times, professing believers will welcome the excuse to do other things on the Lord's Day. But in other cases, it may be due to a lack of teaching on the subject Many people have effectively been taught that real Christianity is about them and their Bible. 
and perhaps parachurch organisations, with the church being very much the poor relation, but it's certainly not where the real action is. So these are some of the trends which mean that Christian gathering today is under threat. And, and we as a congregation are, are not immune to this, uh, James. And I heard a presbytery during the week, the, the, the report of presbytery's visitation. Uh, a member of the visitation committee will come here in the next month or so uh, and read that out. Uh, we'll all get, get copies to take away, but, but, but in that, that visitation report, Presbytery does raise the concern uh, that there are members in the congregation who attend worship infrequently. Uh, so so these, these trends, they're not just affecting other congregations, uh, but they affect us too. Uh, but particularly if you're new to church, know that those are not examples to follow. But rather listen to what God says about the importance and the role of Christian gathering. And it is important to realise that this isn't a modern problem. From the days of the New Testament onwards, there have been professing Christians who have decided that they don't need to go to church. The clearest example of that is, is one we read earlier in Hebrews 10 where the writer says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then the very next verse begins with the sobering words, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Why were, why were the, the Christians in Hebrews neglecting to meet together? Well, we're not specifically told, but the letter to, to the Hebrews was written to converted Jews who were tempted to go back to Judaism. Judaism with its temple and with its outwardly spectacular worship Compared to the Christian church where the worship was simple and unimpressive. So unimpressive looking in fact that it would have been tempting to despise it and look elsewhere. And from that day right down to ours there have been professing Christians who have said either with their lips or their lives that they don't really need to go to church. So Christian gathering is under threat. Now perhaps for you that has never been an issue. Perhaps it has never crossed your mind not to go to church if you've physically been able to be here and you haven't been doing necessary work such as working as a doctor or nurse in a hospital. But it would be possible to be at church each week and simply be here out of duty. Or perhaps to come critically. Uh, Tony Merida lists some steps for listening to God's word in church. And his first one is listen humbly. Quoting the command in James chapter 1 to receive with meekness the implanted word. Another of his exhortations is listen personally. He says listen for yourself not for someone else. 
Don't come to critique the pastor's sermon, but come ready to be addressed from God's word. And how many people come to church, but don't come ready to be addressed by God's word. David Murray, who who used to be a minister up in Stornoway, writes the following in the book, The Happy Christian. Uh, He's writing about things that, that, that stop Christians being happy. And he says, one of the most lethal habits Christians can fall into is to talk negatively about other Christians in front of their children or in front of unbelievers. I've seen children spiritually devastated due to regular Sunday meals served up a diet of roast pastor, barbecued elders and boiled Christians. In some cases, he says, tragically it turned the children away from the church. In other cases, the negativity created perpetually discontented church members of their kids. They had gotten so habituated to hearing pastors and churches criticised in their childhood that they could not break the cycle when they became adults. And those are our sobering words, particularly for those of us who are parents. And as David Murray writes those words, his, his majority of his pastoral experience was in Scotland in churches very like ours. They had gotten so habituated to hearing pastors and churches criticised in their childhood that they could not break the cycle once they became adults. So merely gathering as God's people is not an end in itself. Gatherings of professing Christians can easily become toxic. People can attend such gatherings from the wrong motives. Uh, And so we'll come to see in our second point, not simply that God expects us to gather, though he does, but but what our focus is to be on when we do gather. So having seen firstly that Christian gathering is under threat, we come to see secondly why we must keep gathering, or to use the words directly taken from Hebrews 10, why we must not give up meeting together. Uh, So if you want a a sermon heading taken straight from the words of Scripture, why we must not give up meeting together. There are are two ways that we could approach the need to keep gathering. The first would be simply for me to bring you as many biblical commands as possible that God's people should gather together to set before you your duty. And that is important, and we'll spend part of our time doing that. But even if I were to convince everyone in the congregation to be at worship each Lord's Day and manage to get you coming out of duty, well, that would mean more more pews filled, more seats filled. But God's after more than that, because God is always after our hearts. Through the threatenings of God's word or perhaps through force of personality, a minister can convince people to do things that they don't want to do. But God says, my son, give me your heart. And so I would regard a sermon like this as a failure if you simply went home saying, well, he said we need to make worship a bigger priority rather than going home saying, 
I'd never seen before just what an awesome privilege it is to be able to gather together and worship God. Or I was reminded today what an amazing thing it is that we get to go to church. The social media platform Twitter has been in the news this past week after it was bought over by Tesla CEO Elon Musk. Um, there's one Twitter account called Lord's Day, but its tagline is counting down the days until the next Lord's Day when Christians will gather together to worship our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And every day it will post out a tweet, only six more days until the Lord's Day, only five more days until the Lord's Day, and so on. And surely that is a desire that God wants us to have more and more. So why we must not give up meeting together. Two reasons. The first one is that God expects us to. God expects us to. We've already had the, the exhortation of Hebrews 10 not to neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. And yet some will still say, but why do we need to meet together? Sure, all of life is worship. And that is a, a half-truth uh, which is, is taken and, and used and becomes very dangerous. Uh, yes, it's true that whether we eat or drink or, or whatever we do, we're to do all to the glory of God. And the word worship is even used in that broader sense in Scripture. We're told to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. That includes bringing our bodies to worship, though it includes more than that. But worship in Scripture is also an event which begins and ends at a certain time. So in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 22, when Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac, he tells his servant, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. So there's a time when they start worship, a time when they finish worship, and a time when they go back to their servant. The very word church might be better translated as assembly. Yes, we're always part of the church. The church is more than the building. But the church is only fully the church when it gathers together. Ephesians 3.18 tells us that it's only when we're gathered with all the saints that we can comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. One writer has said that whoever isolates himself from the church becomes a branch that is torn from the tree and shrivels or an organ that is separated from the body and doomed to die. Uh, boys and girls, if you, you see a, a branch lying on the ground, maybe uh, some of these windy days a branch gets blown down. Uh, that's what, what God wants us to, to think of. Uh, a Christian is like if, if they say they don't need to go to church. It's like a branch that is separated from the rest of the tree. And to, to return more specifically to the claim that all of life is worship, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, we read part of it before communion last week, Paul repeatedly uses the phrase that when you come together, or, or when you come together as a church, eating the Lord's Supper when we come together as a church is very different from eating a meal at home. 
and so different rules apply. Or the, the second of the two chapters in Hebrews, we read earlier, Hebrews 12, it says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Uh, that tells us a couple of things. Firstly, that someone choosing not to attend worship cannot offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. But also that even when we do gather together, again, it's not the gathering that's an end of in and of itself, because it's not that anything goes when we do gather. Yes, New Testament worship is, is different from Old Testament worship. It's, it's simpler for a start. But we still come before the same God. Uh, that's, that's the big point in Hebrews 12. And the big question isn't what our worship preferences are, but what God's are. Because just like a, a teacher might write unacceptable on a pupil's homework, or someone may be given a performance review at work which says that their standard of their work is unacceptable, in the same way the word unacceptable might be written over the worship of individual worshippers or indeed entire congregations. So what is acceptable worship? Well, just briefly, there are three elements to it. Firstly, it must come from someone who has faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, the previous chapter of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please him. That must be the starting point. But then the worship itself must follow God's commands. As Jesus taught in Mark 7, 7, it's possible to worship God in vain when we do so according to the commandments of men. And then finally, acceptable worship must be from the heart. Because not to do so brings no glory to God because it is just an empty shell. My son, God says, give me your heart. My daughter, give me your heart. God calls us to offer acceptable worship to him. So skipping church to go for a hike on a Sunday might get someone closer to nature, but it will leave them farther from God. Closer to nature, but farther from God. So we must not give up meeting together because God expects us to. But then finally this morning, the second uh, sub-point onto this second heading, the second reason why we must not give up meeting together is that worship is where Jesus is particularly present. Worship is where Jesus is particularly present. Many years ago, a minister had a woman in his congregation who was totally deaf, but still never missed worship. And she told her minister, Though I cannot hear you, I come to God's house because I love it. For there I am in the more immediate presence of God and among his people who are the honourable of the earth. Uh, what, what, a, what a great thing to say. But my question this morning is, was she right? Or is that just a nice idea, but not one that's rooted in scripture? Was she right to believe that to come and join God's people in worship was to enter the more immediate presence of God? Was she right? 
Yes, she was. In Revelation chapter 1, it might be helpful to turn to it. We're given a glorious vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And two particularly important things to notice about this vision are the when and the where. Firstly, the when. John tells us, Revelation 1 verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. So that's the the when. What about the where? Where is the Lord Jesus when John sees him on the Lord's day? Revelation 1.13, he's in the midst of the lampstands. And the lampstands, as we're told in verse 20, are the churches. So putting that together, what does it tell us? It tells us that Jesus is in the midst of his churches on the Lord's day. So to choose to be somewhere other than church on the Lord's day is to choose somewhere else over the one place where we know that God is especially present. Maybe you say, hold on a minute, it's just a coincidence that, that, that John has this vision on the Lord's day. Surely Jesus is in the midst of his churches every day. And yes, undoubtedly, Jesus is with his church all the time. He's with us as we scatter as well as when we gather. But before you write off the significance of the particular day that John sees Jesus in the midst of his churches, think back to Jesus' appearances to his disciples after the resurrection. When does he first appear to the disciples? Well, that's an easy one. Uh, Resurrection Sunday. But then he doesn't appear to them at all during the following week until the next Sunday when he appears to them again. And then, of course, as we go through the rest of the New Testament, we see that Sunday, which John here calls the Lord's Day, is when God's people meet together. So even from those few references, we would be justified in expecting that Jesus will be present in a special way when we meet together as a church on his day. And and there are many more that we could turn to. But in in what way is Jesus present when we meet together? Well, I think we have a clue here in Revelation 1.16, which is elaborated on in the rest of the New Testament. Jesus is pictured there meeting with his people on the Lord's day with a sword coming out of his mouth. And I don't think there can be any doubt that it's a reference to the sharp two-edged sword of his word. So Jesus is present with his church as his word is preached. Our meeting today is special not because meeting in a church building is special, though we're grateful for it, but, but first and foremost because Jesus is present as his word is being preached And we could add in our singing as well, Hebrews 2 verse 12 uh, takes the, the words of Psalm 22 and applies them to the Lord Jesus. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus commits to sing praise with us in the midst of the congregation. He is present as we sing. In fact, we should think of worship not so much as Jesus coming down to us, but of us being raised up to heaven. Someone has said that all true worship takes place in heaven. 
Uh, what do they mean by that? Well, we'll think, for example, of, of Paul when he tells us in Ephesians that we're already seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Or, or the passage we read, Hebrews 12, uh, just before it tells us about offering acceptable worship. It tells us that we have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to Jesus. That is what we come to when we come to worship. What do we come to? To summarize Hebrews 12, we come to heaven itself, the, the gate of heaven. As we saw when I preached in Isaiah 6, following the Queen's death, the place where God's people meet together to worship him is the place where heaven and earth meet. When we gather to worship, heaven and earth meet. Nothing less happens. Outwardly unimpressive. But it's nothing less than the meeting together of heaven and earth. Think about that if you've lost a loved one who was a believer. You are never closer to them than when you come to worship. Because you're doing the same thing that they are doing at that moment. And you're effectively doing it in the same place. Because when we come to worship, we come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So the Christian life, yes, it involves activism. It involves scattering. It involves living out the one another's and living out the Great Commission. Though, of course, a big part of the Great Commission is fulfilled through the, the teaching ministry of the church. Uh, but but Christ, the Christian life, it, it involves these things. It involves loving our neighbours as ourselves. Uh, but modern day evangelicalism tends to stress these things more so than the gathering. And yet our greatest privilege is worship. After all, that's what we were created for. And so while we are physically able let us say with that deaf woman of many years past, I come to God's house because I love it. For there I am in the more immediate presence of God and among his people who are the honourable of the earth. And let's not wake up on the Lord's Day morning thinking, I suppose I have to go to worship today. But rather, let's wake up by God's grace saying, I get to go to worship today. I get to do the very thing I was created for with the very people I will spend eternity with. And so despite all the challenges, despite the fact that many families with small children feel that the devil is particularly active on a Sunday morning because everything that can go wrong will go wrong, we'll be there. Because to paraphrase the words of the disciples of Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Amen. Well, we'll close this morning by singing of the great desire of the man after God's own heart, David, to be at worship. Psalm 27, Psalm 27, David, who, who is described as a man after God's own heart. And surely one of the evidences of that is his desire to, to be present in the worship of God. Verses 
4 and 5 particularly here. Can we sing these verses and mean them? One thing I of the Lord have asked and will seek to obtain, that all days of my life I in the Lord's house may remain, that I, the beauty of the Lord, behold may and admire, and that within his temple I may reverently inquire. True in the ultimate sense of the heavenly temple, but true also of the assemblies of God's people here on earth. As Jesus said as a boy of twelve, Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? And each Lord's Day, his people, unless kept away by illness or works of necessity or mercy, will say the same. So Psalm 27, 4 through 8, will stand to sing praise.